This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. 2017 is going to be a volatile economic year. We may see politicians throughout the world attempting to control central bank policies. Several renowned financial analysts have warned that political interference in central bank policies may mean our economic misses of inflation and growth targets. Gold is an international currency that can't be issued or controlled by governments. If you don't have the only hard currency that has outlasted every politician and every failed idea of governments for centuries, you need to speak to Goldline right now and learn how easy it is to add gold to your portfolio or IRA. Now is the time to diversify your financial portfolio by adding gold. Call 1-800-913-GOLD. Buying real gold is easy and fast at Goldline. And you're going to be happy that you finally made the call. 1-800-913-4653. Goldline also offers price protection against short-term market fluctuations on qualifying purchases. So buy with confidence. Read Goldline's important risk information and find out if buying gold is right for you. Call Goldline. 1-800-913-4653. 653. And go for Mike Slater in 3, 2, 1. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. It's America's greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thank you for being here. Got a lot to do, obviously. I want to start here. I'm super excited uh, for this segment, so why not? Let's start with it. We now have proof. We have proof. Everything we've been saying about virtue signaling is true. And not only true, but uh, even a little deeper than, than maybe we supposed. Outrage. Very in vogue today, right? So not only are we supposed to be outraged by everything... And look for outrage. Look for things to be outraged about. But now it's, it's like a competition. And, and people try to out-outrage the other guy. Right? So I guess the, the dumb outrage of last week, and there's literally two or three a day. I'm not exaggerating. But one of the dumbest of last week was, oh my gosh, did you see Kellyanne Conway with her feet on the couch? Oh, that's outrageous. And then someone else says, oh, it's... Uh, I'm way more outraged than that. And then the other person's like, oh, I'm even more outraged than, than you thought I was, and I'm more outraged than you. And it's just this ridiculous competition to see who's more outraged than the other guy. It's crazy. So what is this? Where does this come from? Why do we do this? Or why do other people do this? I'm out. I'm out of the outrage game. I don't, I don't want to play anymore. Uh, but analyzing why other people do this, super interesting. So back in the day, if you were outraged about something, it was about an injustice that occurred. And your outrage came from a selfless concern for the well-being of, of another person or, or a thing, right? It was a very selfless concern. But now we live in, in a narcissistic world. So outrage is no longer about selflessness. It's not. It's no longer about an injustice that occurred to someone else. And you're like, oh man, like I can't believe that happened. Like I'm outraged that that would happen to you. It's not about that. Now it's about your own self-interest, so that other people think you're a good person. But it goes even deeper than that. So some psych researchers, psych professors, have been doing research on guilt, of all things. And they wrote this gem. I want to read it here, and we're going to unpack all of this, but this is, this is their conclusion. Feelings of guilt 
are a direct threat to one's sense that you are a moral person. We're going to explain all this. And accordingly, research on guilt finds that this emotion elicits elicits strategies aimed at alleviating guilt that do not always involve undoing one's actions. So you, you feel guilty for something you did, but instead of undoing that thing that made you feel guilty, you, you look for other strategies to make you feel less guilty. Uh, furthermore, research shows that individuals respond to reminders of their group's moral culpability. We'll get to this with feelings of outrage at third party harm doing. These findings suggest that feelings of moral outrage long thought to be grounded solely in concerns with maintaining justice may sometimes reflect efforts to maintain a moral identity. All right, let's unpack it. So if you feel guilty about something you did, right, that doesn't feel good. Here's why. We all think we're great people. <laughs> Everyone does. Everyone thinks they're a good person. Even people on death row deep down think they're a good person. Every single person in history thinks they're a good person. Hitler thought he was a good person. We all think we are good people. Now, if we do something and we feel guilty about it, then we experience what's called, and we talk about a lot, cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance. Meaning, we have two conflicting views held at the exact same time. Our brain doesn't like when we have two conflicting views at the exact same time. So when that happens, something's got to give. So view number one is I'm a good person. Okay. View number two, oh, I feel guilty. That must mean I'm a bad person. So those are two conflicting views held at the same time. I'm a good person and I'm a bad person. So something's got to give. You can't have both those at the same time. That's cognitive dissonance doesn't feel right. So something's got to go. Now, the obvious thing to do would be to undo the thing that makes you feel guilty, right? Ask for forgiveness to that person or whatever, right? That's the right thing. That's the obvious thing. If you feel guilty about something, undo it the best you can. But instead, we don't do that because that involves confrontation. It involves humility, difficult discussions, admitting you're wrong, personal responsibility, right? All these, we don't like to do that. So instead we look for the easy way out and we get outraged at other things that other people are doing. The outrage is a way of covering up your own guilt of your own actions. So not only is being outraged in a way that other people can see, it's, it's like, Hey, everyone, look at me. Look, look at what a great person I am. I'm outraged at this thing. I'm outraged that, I don't know, Apple computers would do this or Uber would do this or whatever it is. Uh, Trump would, I'm outraged at Trump's. I'm so outraged about it. Everyone, look at me. I'm going to put it on Twitter. I'm going to put it on Facebook. I'm going to tell everyone I know how outraged I am at this so that people think I'm a good person. But it's also getting outraged so that you trick yourself into thinking you're a good person. You get outraged at things so that, in a way to cover up your guilt and as a, as a way to mask your guilt of something else you did, right? This is so important. So outrage is no longer based out of a, a you know, a selfless, you know, I really care about you and this issue. It's, it's no longer about that. And then it, it's like, well, 
I feel guilty about something. So, hey, everyone, look at me. Look at how outraged I am at this thing. Therefore, I'm a good person, right? If I'm outraged that this person said something about transgender folk or whatever, if I'm outraged at that conservative, then that means I'm a good person. And everyone, people praise me for how outraged I am. But now it's even more than that. Now it's, I'm going to be outraged at this other thing so that I think I'm a good person. So that I think, so I trick myself into thinking I'm a good person by ignoring, by masking, by covering up the guilt I feel about something else. Because again, the cognitive dissonance, I'm a good person is one belief. The second belief is, well, I'm guilty. Therefore I'm a bad person. So if we can do things that can cover up the guilt, right? And we, and we try to pretend that that's not really there. Then all we again, focus on is the, I'm a good person part, which is what we really want to focus on. So I hope that makes sense. Here's how they get there. And then I want to talk about what this means and what we do with this, but here's how, how they got there. So they did a study and I'm super simplifying this, but this is basically how it works. So uh, you walk into the study and they say, Hey, thank you for being here. Thanks for being at the study. This is really helpful. Really, really appreciate it. Um, read this article here about Apple computers hiring people in third world countries and, and paying them next to nothing. Bad working conditions, dangerous working conditions. They're not getting paid anything. Uh, just go ahead and read that article and let us know what you think about it. Those people, after they read the article, it was a fake news article. After literally, it was, they wrote it. The researchers wrote it. After that, they read the article. They said, "So, how do you feel about Apple doing that?" And everyone's like, "Oh, you know, that's not great." Well, on a scale of one to ten, how bad is what they do? Ah, like a five, six. It's not. It's not great, but you know. Okay. So then another person walks in and they say, "Hey, man, thank you so much for coming to the study. We really, really appreciate you being here." Hey, so sweatshops, right? Oh my gosh, sweat child sweatshop labor. Oh, it's the worst. Unbelievable. Do you have do you have do you have any clothes made by children in sweatshops in, in Malaysia or third world country? Oh that yeah, that shirt. It's uh, that shirt's from the gap. Yeah, that's that's made by children in sweatshops. Yeah. Mm, that's <laughs> I mean, no, listen, you do what you gotta do, but um it's pretty disgusting actually that you would wear a, a shirt made by children in a sweatshop. But no, but no, anyway, listen, that's neither here nor there. Glad you're here. Go ahead, read this article here about Apple computers and the way that they treat people in third world countries. Okay, the people read the article. So do you see the difference? They were primed. These people were primed to feel guilty about their involvement with sweatshop labor. Okay, so now they feel guilty. So now they're like, well, hold on, I'm a good person, but now I feel guilty. So that means I'm a bad person. What do I do? All right, they read the Apple computer article. And then afterwards, they're asked, hey, what do you think about that, uh, about Apple computers? Oh, it's, it's unbelievable. Tim Cook is the devil. I can't believe they would do that. I'm boycotting Apple. Apple's the worst. I'm telling all my friends I'm going to burn an Apple store to the ground. Like super, super outraged. And it's like, whoa, why are you so outraged? It's because they were primed to feel guilty about something they did and they do right before they read the article. So that's where they get the conclusion that if you feel guilty about something you've done, then you are more inclined to be super outraged about something else in an effort to make yourself feel better about yourself. (laughs) Not only so that other people think you're a good person, but so that you yourself then think you're a good person. Now, here's the last point. So we know that, that guilt makes people feel more outraged about other things. 
But once the people get outraged, it turns out they do feel less guilty about themselves. So it does work, quote unquote. It does make them feel better, right? So let's say, um, you know, they'd ask you after, you know, you talk about sweatshop labor, you know, how, how guilty are you? They'd be like, oh, geez, like, like a nine, 10. I was so guilty. And then afterwards, they, you know, they freak out about Apple computers and how Tim Cook is awful and a- Apple computers are the worst and they're the devil and I'm boycotting. And then afterwards, they'd be like, oh, real quick, by the way, how guilty are you about uh, your sweatshop labor uh, T-shirt? And they'd be like, oh, you know, no big deal. Four. You know, got to wear clothes, right? <laughs> so like the outrage actually made them feel less guilty. This is the trick we play on ourselves. Okay, take a break. That's how it works. If you have any questions, one 900 I'll try to explain it better. Um, or you can send me a tweet, Slater Radio. Um, and I think I'll send the, I'll tweet out the article right now or the, uh, the study right now so you can check it out yourself. Uh, but if you have any questions, one 900 I think this is incredibly important. Coming up next, we'll talk about what this looks like and what we do with this now that we know this is what causes this phony outrage all the time. We'll do that next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Two thousand and seventeen is going to be a volatile economic year. We may see politicians throughout the world attempting to control central bank policies. Several renowned financial analysts have warned that political interference in central bank policies may mean our economic misses of inflation and growth targets. Gold is an international currency that can't be issued or controlled by governments. If you don't have the only hard currency that has outlasted every politician and every failed idea of governments for centuries, you need to speak to Goldline right now and learn how easy it is to add gold to your portfolio or IRA. Now is the time to diversify your financial portfolio by adding gold. Call 1-800-913-GOLD. Buying real gold is easy and fast at Goldline. And you're going to be happy that you finally made the call. 1-800-913-4653. Goldline also offers price protection against short-term market fluctuations on qualifying purchases. So buy with confidence. Read Goldline's important risk information and find out if buying gold is right for you. Call Goldline. 1-800-913-4653. This is Mike Slater. All right, so I, I love this story. I love this proof that uh, a lot of the time, I don't know, most of the time, it's hard to say, but I'll, I'll say it. most of the time when people are outraged, at least in the political world, um, when they're outraged at something on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, most of it's motivated by internal feelings that that person has, that internal feelings of guilt about something completely unrelated. So maybe you feel guilty that, you know, or someone feels guilty that they said something to their wife that morning that they shouldn't have, right? Now, they think they're a good husband, but they just did something that m- makes them a bad husband. Kind of dissonance. You can't have both of those views at the same time. So obviously the thing to do would be to apologize to your wife for what you did. Therefore, you won't have guilt anymore and you can go back to thinking you're a good husband. But we don't do that because that involves, again, humility and personal responsibility and, all, and conflict. So instead, your confrontation. So instead, we get outraged to other things, outwardly outraged as a way to trick ourselves 
into thinking we're good people as a way to cover the guilt that we have about something else we did and trick ourselves into thinking that we're actually good people. Amazing. So when you see people who are perpetually outraged about perceived injustices or people who are actively searching out to be outraged at things, they're probably overcompensating. There's probably something else going on in their life and the, the outrage is not worthy of your time. I want to read this abstract from the, uh, from the study. Why do people express moral outrage? That's the virtue signaling Twitter stuff we talk about. While this sentiment often stems from a perceived violation of some moral principle, that's the, you know, the, the old school outrage. Like, gosh, I can't... Like, Glenn Beck does a lot of things with... Um, Uh, human trafficking, right? Like that's a real genuine outrage at an injustice that's occurring. And Glenn is, is in a completely righteous way, motivating people to be aware and to actively stop this human trafficking and save lives with operation underground railroad, right? He's not just changing his Twitter avatar and be like, Oh, okay. Solve that problem. No, no, he's actively helping the people who are really doing things to save people's lives, right? That's a real moral outrage, and that's fine. Obviously, it's great. That's a good thing. But that's motivated by a, a, from a pure, genuine place. Uh, anyway, they go on. We test the counterintuitive possibility that moral outrage at third-party transgressions is sometimes a means of reducing guilt over one's own moral failings and restoring a moral identity. Again, thinking that you're a good person. So we got two takeaways here. When you get outraged at something, stop for a second and ask why. Really, really do this next time you, uh, you read something or you're watching something and you get outraged. Really think about why are you outraged? Don't get just swept. Don't, don't just get swept up by the emotion of outrage. Like really think about it. I got a minute here so we can talk about this. So the book, the number one book that we used uh, on this show to analyze Donald Trump's election, his campaign, we've been using it for about, about, well, I first used it with Barack Obama back in 2008 and then kind of got away from it and then got back to it. At least it wasn't right away, but just maybe a month or two into Trump's nomination or not nomination, uh, announcing he was going to run. And the book is The 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene. And I had the unbelievable honor of talking to Robert Greene on my local show the other day. Just, it was phenomenal to talk to him. He doesn't do interviews a lot. It was super cool to talk to this guy. So The 48 Laws of Power. And it's a great book. Uh, it's, it's an amazing history book. He'll tell stories from thousands of years ago. And it's like the weirdest history stories that you would never hear of. It's like, Oh, this Mongolian king 2,500 years ago was fighting against this other person you've never heard of, of this tribe that no one's it. And it's like, what? How do you, how do you know? Like, where'd you get all the, it's an unbelievable history book. So Trump has exhibited, we've gone over on this show, probably 15 of the 48 rules that Trump just abides. By. Oh, by the way, this is the number one uh, banned book in prisons across the country. It's considered contraband. 
And uh, there's no doubt in my mind that Donald Trump has read it. Robert Greene has said that former presidents he knows for a fact have read it. Uh, I'm convinced that Donald Trump has read it as well uh, because it is just all to the T. Anyway, the big point of the book, overall arching theme, is to not get swept up by emotion. So it's kind of a very stoic a stoic uh, theme throughout the whole thing. Don't get swept up by things. Don't get swept up by outrage. Don't get swept up by any emotions, fear, anger, even love. Don't get swept up when you're trying to make decisions with emotion. Just take a step back for a second and think. Think clearly, think properly about, first of all, where is this sense coming from? And then what's the proper, the real proper course of action? So again, if you feel outraged, just take a step back. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Why, why, why am I feeling this way? Could it be just I feel guilty about something completely unrelated? And, and I'm trying to like, trick myself into thinking I'm a good person by being outraged by this other thing. Like Genuinely, that happens to everyone. But here's more likely. When someone else gets outraged, don't get outraged at their outrage. Don't attack them for their outrage because their outrage is probably just some moral preening that you don't need to be a part of. And if you are outraged at their outrage, then they become a martyr. And that's what they really want, right? That's how they really know they're a good person. If they're outraged at something, you're like, oh, you're an idiot. I can't believe you're outraged. They're like, oh, oh, you don't understand. Like, oh, like I'm fighting the good fight here. And now I'm a victim because I've been attacked and I'm a martyr for the cause. And oh, I'm such a good person, right? So just don't, don't engage. Because they're just going to feel better about themselves, masking their own guilt even more. So just let it go. <laughs> let that outrage go. There's going to be another one tomorrow and another one tomorrow and four more the next day. Don't be a part of that. Take a step back and let's focus on what really matters, what's really important, not just fake moral preening outrages. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network, for the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. listening to Mike Slater. Thanks for being here. So I just mentioned the, the book 48 Laws of Power. Definitely recommend you reading it. It is the toughest read I've ever uh, had in my life. I, I should have mentioned that. It's a very unique read. How do I explain it? So there's a, it's just, it's just heavy. It's heavy and I have to read pages multiple times, but gosh, it is so good. So buy it, please, and, and get your pen ready. And make lots of notes in it. It's it's that kind of book. You don't just read it straight through. Um, it's it's a resource. You'll go back to it a hundred times. And it's set up. It, it has a rule, and then a couple stories, and then the uh, people who do the rule, right? People who have who have done the rule exactly, and then people who haven't abided by the rule, which have resulted in failure. And then they'll do an analysis of it, and then it'll have the, if possible, the reverse of the rule as well. It's super super interesting. So. I'll give you an example of this. One of the laws, law 21, play a sucker to catch a sucker. Seem dumber than you think. 
And here's the write-up. No one likes feeling stupider than the next person. The trick then is to make your victims feel smart. And not just smart, but smarter than you are. Once convinced of this, they will never suspect that you may have ulterior motives. Very simple example of this is what Trump is doing to the media. Now, this is easy prey right, for this rule, this law, because the media, media's elitism, right, the fact that they think they are gods and the smartest people of all time. I'll explain that God's uh, t- uh, sentence and I'll, I'll do that in the next segment because they do. Uh, they think they're gods. They think they're the smartest people of all time. You mix in the fame that comes from being on TV, uh, this delusional, I'm so important because it's about the news. And also, uh, media is a very easy to see ladder of success. So it's a profession for ambitious people. It's very easy to see, like, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to progress to this, and then this, and then this, and then this, and then one day I'm going to be Bill O'Reilly, right? So you can can see the steps, and it's just, it's, it's, it attracts ambitious people, right? So you have fame, ambition, influence, all these things come together. These are all very dangerous. As George W. Bush said the other day, these things are corrosive. Now, he said that power, you know, fame, ambition, influence, power is corrosive of the president. Which, and he said that's why we need a, a free media in order to check that corrosive power. But I'm saying that people in the media have that corrosiveness in them as well. Right? They themselves have fame, ambition, influence, and power. And it has already corroded them to the core, which is why they're in no position to have any moral authority uh, or, or influence or, you know. Uh, that's what I'm looking for. Any more authority or um, deserved influence uh, of the American people. Anyway, got off topic. Point is Trump has played the media like a fiddle because he's playing a sucker to catch a sucker and he's seeming dumber than the media think. Right? Than they think, right? So Trump's whole thing here is to to make the media think that he's stupid and to make the media think that they're smarter than he is. Now, again, that's easy to do, not because Trump is stupid, but because the media is so, so arrogant that they think they're smarter than everyone. So Trump can do things and the immediate assumption by everyone in the media is that he's an idiot. They're super smart. He's dumb. And they roll with that. And Trump plays them like a fiddle. So Ben Shapiro, who does not like Trump at all, He's a conservative, does not like Trump. Wrote an article the other day about Trump's enemies and how he chooses his enemies very wisely. So who are Trump's enemies? The media. NBC poll, 53% of Americans think, quote, the media are exaggerating the problems with the Trump administration because they are uncomfortable and threatened with the kind of change that Trump represents. So that means most Americans, when they see a story about Donald Trump on the news, most Americans look at that story and assume that it's being exaggerated because the media hates him. And Trump has been setting it up that way perfectly for the entire campaign. Second enemy, China. 52% of Americans have an unfavorable view of China. Okay, that's one of Trump's enemies. Number three, the globalists. Right now, we're in an era of nationalism. Right? So the globalists are the enemy. Four, the establishment. 86% of Americans think, quote, a small group in our nation's capital has reaped the rewards of government while the people have borne the cost. 
So if Trump can always remain an outsider to the establishment and make the establishment the enemy, then he is going to be in a position of authority and power. Fifth, Trump's fifth enemy, ISIS. That's easy. Then illegal immigrants. Most Hispanics are against sanctuary cities. So Trump has made illegal immigrant criminals his enemy. And then finally, the Democrats. And they've never had a lower approval rating ever. So here's Ben Shapiro. He says, that's the nice thing about being Trump and spotting enemies around every corner. The more enemies you spot, the more people who will agree with you that at least one of your enemies is their enemy too. Trump is purposefully selecting these enemies because everyone hates them. (laughs) He's not picking enemies that people like. He's picking enemies that people hate. Now you may be saying, well, hold on. Don't people like Meryl Streep? Yeah. Well, no, because really it's what she represents. She represents Hollywood and people hate Hollywood and the elitism that they represent. So he's not picking Meryl Streep on her. He's picking on everything she represents. Now to do that, and Trump does this purposely. He doesn't go after like a, like a lightweight in Hollywood, like a bit actor, right? He goes after the top of Hollywood. And says she's overrated and all the rest. And that what that is, is it's all of Hollywood. He picks his enemies purposefully and perfectly. And obviously that sets him up for success. Now, I guess this in a way, it's, it's the old advice about uh, outrunning a bear in the woods. So imagine a bear. You guys are camp, you're camping with some friends and a bear is running after you. You don't have to outrun the bear. You just have to outrun the other guy in, <laughs> in order to survive. So Trump doesn't, have to be popular. He just has to be more popular or more liked than his enemies, than ISIS, than the media, than sanctuary cities, than Nancy Pelosi. And an- another thing that I've been trying to prove the last couple months is that really all Trump has to do is be better than the caricature that has been created about him. And when you have the media painting this picture about Trump being not only Hitler, but a total idiot. It's pretty simple to come by every once in a while and, and be better than that caricature. That's why people liked his speech so much the other day. It was all on a curve. It was graded on a curve. Now, I think it was actually a genuinely very, very good speech. But when everyone is expecting a total disaster, then all that has to be is okay and everyone thinks it's great. And I say he's done all that on purpose. That's where people don't give him credit. People think Trump is stupid. All right, here, people think they're smart and Trump is stupid, right? People who hate Trump, they think that they're smart and Trump is stupid. I'm telling you, law 21 says, law 21 of power, 48 laws of power. Law 21, play a sucker to catch a sucker, seem dumber than you think. I think it's tough to be a dumb billionaire. (laughs) You can be an immoral billionaire. You can be a bad person and be a billionaire, most certainly, but not a dumb one. There's not a lot of dumb billionaires, especially in, in Trump's, in the industry that he's in, right? Those people, Trump, master of marketing, branding, messaging, all that stuff. And I, I, I am moving forward and I have for the last year and a half, nearly everything. Now everyone's going to make mistakes here and there and do things that they shouldn't have and didn't mean to, of course. But I'm, I'm under the assumption that if Trump does something, it is purposeful. It is with, for a plan. There's a plan. There's a reason. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's playing the long game. He's setting something up. He's manipulating people. He's playing the game. And he's, he's, he's wielding his power over everyone that people don't even realize is being done. I truly, genuinely believe that. Law 21. Play a sucker to catch a sucker. Seem dumber than you think. 
You may not agree with him on policy or, or even some principles that he has, but you can't think he's dumb. But too many people do, and to their own demise. If nothing else, he picks his enemies wisely. Even when he went after John McCain, this, this, when he said John McCain, he's like, oh, you know, John McCain, you know, I, I like people who don't get captured. When that happened and then Trump survived it, that's when I said, oh, this is, this is different. This, <laughs> this is something. So why did that work? That worked because John McCain, what does he represent? Not veterans. He represents the establishment. He represents the old guard. Eight years ago, he was the nominee. He lost to Obama, right? So that's why Trump was attacking the establishment when he did that. And that's why people let it go. And, and when the more he chooses these targets, the more he chooses these enemies properly, the more powerful and influential he becomes. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. I got an example of not getting swept up by emotion. So this whole Jeff Sessions controversy. Um, came home Wednesday night from something. Um, it was like 9 o'clock. Turned on the TV. MSNBC was on. Don't ask. Long story. Breaking news. Banners flashing. Sound effects. It, the, the text on the bottom of the screen was scrolling faster than normal. Like, like there's so much information they got to get out there right now. That everything's got to go super fast, super loud, super big in your face. It was game on, big time, huge news, earth shattering. I was like, oh my gosh, like, is that a terrorist attack? Is that aliens coming? Like, huge, huge news. It's like, this is unbelievable. And it was the Jeff Sessions controversy. Now, remember. Number one priority of TV news is what? Fill time. This fake controversy was a great time filler. I can't emphasize this enough. You have producers of TV shows sitting around saying, what are we going to talk about today? Nothing's going on. Nothing's happening. What do we do? How do we fill the time? I got an hour. We can't just sit here and do nothing. We got, oh, oh. And then this happened. Like, oh, good. Time filler. That's all it was. So it was late at night, and I said, I'll read about it in the morning. So I woke up, read about the whole Jeff Sessions thing, waited for his press conference a little later that afternoon, and it was a giant nothing sandwich. It's not even worth talking about the details because it's so stupid and so nothing. Now, the good news is I never got worked up over it to begin with, so I did not waste a single calorie on it, <laughs> right? But if you're a, D- a Democrat, you're going to watch that and be like, oh, you're, you're freaking out, Ray. Oh, it's a freak out, freak out, freak out. And if you're a conservative, you, you get outraged, like counter outraged, like, oh, no, he's innocent. Blah, blah, blah. I didn't do either. I was, it was too late. <laughs> too late at night. I was tired. Like, ah, I just want to go to bed. So I didn't waste any calories at all. Didn't get swept up in it. And it's so easy to when you got graphics on the TV flashing and banging and whizzing and all the just, just don't. Now, I still do get burned from time to time. This is not a holier than thou point here. I get burned. Uh, too frequently was it last week or two weeks ago james o'keefe had uh you know 
Oh, he's got, he's got big time undercover CNN videos. His operatives are have infiltrated CNN and undercover videos. Blah blah blah. blah. I'll be releasing them in the next few days, and then it was nothing. I think I think the big, and I got excited. I got excited. I was, oh, I can't wait. <sighs> Whatever. The big turning point in my life was a couple of years ago. It was the Floyd Mayweather Manny Pacquiao fight. Remember that was the biggest deal ever. Was that like the the most watched thing or the most money bet ever? And I think I even left an event early. I was at some cool event. I left it to go to a buddy's house and watch it. And it was the dumbest thing ever. It was so just hyped up and it was nothing. And I remember at that moment, I said, I'm not going to get you know riled up over stuff anymore. <laughs> not stuff like this. Now, I, I, just, my point is, I don't want to get... It's not that I don't want to get excited about things. I just want to be more discerning about what is worth getting excited about. So what news is actually a thing and what news is just time filler? Because if it's just time filler, I don't want to waste any calories on it. If it's a real thing, well, then let's investigate. Let's learn more. But if it's just producers trying to fill an hour of TV, come on, we're better than that. So Marcus Aurelius, he was a Roman emperor, uh, like 160 or so. He was a Stoic, and his book is called, Medi- well, it's not his book. It's a collection of personal writings called Meditations. Jim Mattis, Mad Dog Mattis, Trump's. Uh, Secretary of Defense, when he goes on deployments, he carries this book, Meditations, around with him, and he reads it all the time. It's awesome. Anyway, Aurelius, Marcus Aurelius wrote, like seeing roasted meat and other dishes in front of you. So imagine a feast, right? You walk in, and there's just this huge feast. Oh, it's unbelievable. And it's, oh, the, uh, the best silverware. Imagine you're going to, don't, don't think Thanksgiving at your house. Think fanciest restaurant ever fanciest restaurant think you're going to the white house right so it's this huge over the top black tie affair like nothing you've ever seen before crystal glasses like everything there was like 12 forks so you like the most elaborate thing you've ever seen in your life all right so so this is a marcus really says uh like seeing roasted meat and other dishes in front of you and suddenly realizing this is a dead fish a dead bird a dead pig Perceptions like that, latching onto things and piercing through them so that we see what they really are. That's what we need to do all the time. That's Marcus Aurelius. So his point is, don't get distracted by the glitter. Don't get distracted by the breaking new sound effects. Don't get distracted by nonsense. I'll end with Ryan Holiday. He said, expensive food is still dead plants and animals. Fancy clothes are made in sweatshops by children. Rich people still go to the bathroom like everyone else. Marcus Aurelius said, strip things of the legend that encrusts them. Go through your day with objectivity and see things as they are. When you watch the news, when you read the news, don't get riled up. Take a step back. Think, is this worth it? Or is it just time filler? We're better than time filler. You're better than it. Mike Slater, show the plays radio network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome greatest country in the world. Thanks for being happy Saturday. Let's chat a little bit about uh, Trump's speech the other day. 
So I'm really grateful that he brought this point up. Um, he said, today's rare disease day. Joining Megan Crowley, diagnosed with Pompeii disease, rare and serious uh, illness. <coughs> Excuse me. When she was uh, 15 months old, she was not expected to li- live past five. On receiving this news, Megan's dad fought with everything he had to save the life of his precious child. He founded a company to look for a cure and helped develop the drug that saved Megan's life. Today, she's 20 years old and a sophomore at Notre Dame. How awesome. Megan's story is also about the unbounded power of a father's love for a daughter. But our slow and burdensome approval process at the Food and Drug Administration keeps too many advances, like the one that saved Megan's life, from reaching those in need. If we slash the restraints, not just at the FDA, but across our government, then we will be blessed with far more miracles like Megan. In fact, our children will grow up in a nation of miracles. That is awesome. Everything about that, the the story and the rhetoric and everything, the nation of miracles like that. If Trump can brand that and harness that moving forward, that's pretty good. Not a lot of talk ever about the FDA, which is a shame uh, because it's life or death. Now, we talk about it from time to time, and I'm really grateful the president brought it up because the FDA does more harm than good. And, and I, know that's, I know that's a dramatic sentence. Hold on. Uh, hear me out. You got to hear me out. But I think what I just said is true. I'll explain why. But here's how. Four decades ago, and this is just one example. I'll give you many. Four decades ago, the definition of a medical device was first established by the Food and Drug Administration. So a medical device is any instrumentality used in the diagnosis or treatment of a patient. This is Angus King. He said, 40 years ago, a personal computer was a pipe dream. An apple was strictly a fruit. And software was a mink coat. His point is, 40 years later, things change. But that regulation has stayed the same. So what is this meant for real life? Apple, a few years ago, wanted to get into the um, more into the healthcare monitoring world. So an example of this would be blood sugar monitoring. Now, Apple has the technology to do it. That used to be the biggest hurdle, right? Like how, how could possibly a phone, a cell phone, which is a relatively new phenomenon, how could a cell phone possibly monitor your blood sugar levels? Like, like that seemed impossible. Well, we can do that now. That's not the hard part. The hard part is the FDA won't approve it because the definition of a medical device is so broad that the FDA won't let Apple do it without their approval, which Apple could get. But the problem is every time an app updates, which is about a month or so, it has to go. It would have to go through the same many year long approval process by the FDA. And that just makes no sense. So Apple and other companies, other tech companies, other disruptive companies have shied away from medical technologies because it's just too, it's, it's not, it's not worth it. Makes no sense. You can't, but a ma- I mean, because the FDA just, I mean, every time, every, let's say Apple comes up with a, with a program that works. And then a month later, they, they, they want to improve it. Like they got to go through the same couple year long process. It's crazy. But imagine if everyone had an app on their phone that could warn you a couple minutes ahead of time. If you are possibly going to have a heart attack. Um, it's life-changing, and that's possible, but the FDA is blocking it. 
It takes three times as long to get a drug approved in America as it does in Europe. Same drug. You take the same drug. You want to get it approved in Europe and you want to get it approved in America. You start at the same time. It'll take you know eight months in, uh, in Europe. And it'll take 24 months, two years in America. Same drug. And no one in Europe, there's not like mass epidemics across Europe of people dying from unsafe medicines. The European Union actually outsourced their version of the FDA and it works works more efficiently and effectively, obviously. About a year ago, Dr. Pazder, he was the director of the FDA's uh, cancer drug office, right? So he was the, the main guy in charge of approving cancer drugs. And he had this policy that all drug makers had to prove with near certainty that their products are beneficial. Now, the, the medicine might be beneficial for some people. It may not be for everyone. That's a very difficult standard. And in the meantime, people were dying, people willing to try anything in their final days, but Dr. Pazder wouldn't let them. Imagine, I know there's people listening right now who maybe have been in this situation with a family member or a friend where they have cancer and nothing works. Okay, let's try this new treatment. Nothing works. Let's try this new treatment. Nothing works. Okay, well, there's an experimental medication, but you're not allowed to use it. Or, or even worse, there's a medicine in France that would save your life, but you're not allowed to use that. Saving lives in France, but not here in America. Oh my gosh, could you imagine? So that was Dr. Pazder's uh, job. And he was known by all these nicknames, you know, blocking all these medicines until... His wife got cancer. She actually passed away from it last November. And that's when he found a new passion for speeding up the approval process. So that's what it took to open up a bureaucrat's eyes. I'll give you one last example. We, we talked about this when uh, Ebola was a thing. Was it like a year or two ago? There is a machine that can test for Ebola in a patient in 60 minutes with 90% accuracy. It is currently in hospitals across the country. This isn't a pipe dream. This is not like, well, maybe one day. This is right now. It's, it's not even like a prototype. There's one and the, you know, we're trying to make one. They're all over the country in, in hospitals. But the FDA won't let doctors use it. U.S. military doctors used it in Africa, right? So it's in use. We know it works. But the FDA has only approved it for use in America for research purposes, not for the actual testing of patients. So someone would come in. They're showing Ebola symptoms. They would have to take a test, and it took over two days for someone to get the results back. In the meantime, they have to be in quarantine and all these other precautions, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe not even get the proper treatment. When there's a machine literally in the hospital, the same hospital that can find out in 60 minutes with 90% accuracy whether or not the person has Ebola, but the FDA won't let people use it. That's insane. Okay, you get the idea. So why? Why is this? Why is the FDA work like this? It's very simple. Let's say I invent a drug that will save the lives of, uh, okay, let's just take 10 people. Okay, we got 10 people who are sick. I am into medicine that will save the lives of eight of those people, but it will kill two. Are you with me? So I got, so there's 10 people who are sick. I got a medicine. It's going to save eight lives, kill two people. Now, if you're an FDA bureaucrat and you approve this drug, you're going to get in trouble 
for approving something that kills two people. Now, obviously, now expand this to a million people, right? Now we're talking two million people. Right? Eight million people's lives saved, two million people dead. Everyone's going to focus on the two million who ki- were killed because of this medicine. So you're not going to pass it. <laughs> I, could, I mean, I mean two, I'm not going to let these two people die because, right? But if you don't approve the drug, no one will know. If you don't approve the drug and, and everyone there dies, or even the eight people that would have lived died, no one knows that there was a drug that could have saved your life. So you don't get blamed for anything. Now, I look at that and I say, well, the FDA's inaction killed those eight people because if the FDA just got out of the way, then those eight people would still be alive. So I say in this scenario that eight people, that the FDA killed eight people, but that's not how people look at it because people don't know really, again, that this drug could have existed or did it does exist, but the FDA just won't let people use it. So the FDA has an incentive to not approve drugs. They have an incentive to make sure that, you know, everyone, it, it works for everyone all the time or whatever. Right? So, so bureaucrats err until the head bureaucrat's wife dies. And then he errs on the side of, well, let's give it a shot. But even when he figures it out, the system is still made against him. It's still designed to work against him. Does that make sense? So to go back to Trump, I think it's awesome that he brought up the FDA. This is great of all things, right? But I love how he didn't just do the FDA, right? He says, if we slash the restraints, not just at the FDA, but across our government, then we will be blessed with far more miracles like Megan. In fact, our children will grow up in a nation of miracles. Awesome. So FDA is a great analogy for the regulations that are holding people back holding our country back. So grateful he brought it up. one 888 Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. is one last part of Trump's speech from the other day. He said, we financed and built one global project after another, but ignored the fates of our children in the inner cities of Chicago, Baltimore, and Detroit, and so many other places throughout our land. Then in 2016, the earth shifted beneath our feet. The rebellion started. Bah, 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 bah. Finally, the chorus became an earthquake, and the people turned out by the tens of millions, and they were all united by one very simple, very crucial demand that America must put its own citizens first. Because only then... Can we truly make America great again? So that's the theme of the speech, right? That's the theme of Trump's presidency. America first. That's why he said, you know, we financed global projects, but have ignored Detroit. This is one of the big divides in our country. Globalist versus nationalist. Now, if you're a globalist... You just heard me say something very different than what I said. Listen to this. This is super fascinating. I just said that one of the big divides in our country is globalist versus nationalist. Now, if you are a globalist, what you heard me say was one of the biggest divides in our country is between helping people 
and racists. <laughs> That's it. You heard me say, well, the big divide is uh, between those who want to help people and those who are racist. That's how progressives view globalism, helping people. Right? In, in a progressive mindset, when you hear the word globalist or I'm a citizen of the world, stuff like that, what that is, is it applies to their moral foundation of caring and fairness and helping people. Now, the thing is, there's many ways to help people around the world. And no one should be convinced that government spending is the best way to help people around the world. Most foreign aid to third world countries just goes to enrich the dictators there. But being a globalist is this, this virtue signaling about what a caring person you are. But as Trump said, in the meantime, our own cities are being neglected. Now, I, would, I just said our own citizens, you know, our own cities are being neglected. I would say our own people are being neglected. But to a globalist, that doesn't make sense because we're all in the human race, right? So there's no such thing as our people. Right. Trump talks about, he said, our land. Even to a globalist, like that doesn't make sense. That's why there's no borders. There's no such thing as a possession of land. It's, if anything, it's the Native American's land. But really, it's all of our land. It's the Earth's land, right? That whole thing. That's the whole globalist mindset. But I, this is where I stand. I want to see if you agree. I think it is the government's job to serve. And we could talk about what serve means. I think there's a couple definitions. But within the context of the Constitution, it's the government's job to serve our citizens. It's the church's job to serve the human race. Let me say it again. It's the government's job to serve our citizens. It's the church's job to serve the human race. Where the globalists go wrong is they think it's the government's job to serve the human race. No, it's the United States government's job to serve the citizens of this country. If you want to serve people around the world, by all means, please, you should and that is the church's job. Or if you don't want to do it through the church, you can do it through secular organizations around the world. But that is not the government's job. It's our citizens first. It has to be. So that's the globalist perspective. Now, the opposite is nationalism. So while globalism has become helping people, loving people, citizen of the world, but nationalism has become Hitler, right? Nationalism is hating other people, hating other countries, hurting other people. But that's not what it is. What it means is, what I think nationalism means, and I know that's tough to define terms like this that have just become, you know, whatever people want them to be. But for me, nationalism is when you look at an issue, looking at it from the perspective of what benefits the American people first. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to look at this perspective as, in a way that, you know, what hurts other people first or what hurts other countries that's not the goal. The goal is what helps America first. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm not going to look at an issue and say, hmm, how can we stick it to the Chinese? That's not my thing. It's, I'm going to look at it and say, okay, well, how are we going to help the American people? That's the first priority. That's what I'm going to look at. That's the perspective I'm going to look at all things. It doesn't mean I want other countries. I'm not going to you know, encourage genocide and, and a Holocaust in other nations or whatever. That, that's, or here. That is a cartoon characterization of nationalism. That is just Hitler. No, it's America first. Now, I happen to believe, if you want to go a little deeper, I happen to, happen to believe that if you truly want to be a globalist, right, the best way to really be a globalist is to first be a nationalist. Let me say it again. If you really want to be a globalist, you have to first be a nationalist. First and foremost, nationalist. This is why John Quincy Adams, he said that America does not go abroad 
in search of monsters to destroy. But she is a well-wisher to the freedom and independence of all. We don't want other countries to be in bad shape. We wish everyone well. And I think leading by example is the best course of action. This is why the Statue of Liberty, we've talked about this a million times, the Statue of Liberty is actually called Liberty Enlightening the World. It was a statue first. A hundred years later, they slapped a poem on it, which changed the whole definition of the Statue of Liberty. Be a thing about immigration. It was never about immigration. It was designed as a liberty, lighting the torch, holding the torch up for every other country to emulate. Not for every other country to come here, but for every other country to emulate in their own countries. That's what the Statue of Liberty was all about. Liberty enlightening the world. Not everyone coming to America. <laughs> that, that was after, right? So again, it's, just, it's leading, right? It, is it really any different than if a, your plane is crashing, you put your own oxygen mask on first before helping others? Is it any different than that? I don't think it is. Now again, I don't know why it has to be Oh, I, I'm looking at this from America's perspective first. I don't know why that has to be, I want what's bad for other countries. That's not it. I want what's best for America. Why, why is that even controversial? He went on, he gave a, um, uh, you mentioned this, he said, just met with officials and workers from Harley Davidson. Uh, in fact, they proudly displayed five of their magnificent motorcycles made in the USA on the front lawn of my White House. And then he made some joke about like, they wanted me to drive around or something. Uh, At our meeting, I asked them, how are you doing? How is business? They said, it's good. I asked them further how they're doing with other countries, mainly international sales. And they told me without even complaining because they've been so mistreated for so long that they've become used to it, that it's very hard to do business with other countries because they tax our goods at such a high rate. They said that in one case, another country taxed their motorcycles at 100%. But they weren't even asking for a change. But I am. I believe strongly in free trade, but also in fair trade. Uh, To do... Uh, I think that's good. All right, we'll stop there. So now I don't want to get into a whole uh, tariff debate because I actually don't, I don't support tariffs or protectionist policies. I don't support uh, a lot of Trump's uh, trade policies, but those are policy questions. Okay. We can have a, we can have a good conversation about policy. Should we have a tariff? Shouldn't we have a tariff? Okay. We can, I can, we can have a great conversation about that. But first, we got to agree on the principle of America first, right? We have to agree on that principle. Then we can discuss the best way to do that. So if we can all agree, if you and I can agree that the, we should America first, then we can have a civil conversation on whether or not tariffs achieve that principle. I don't think they do. You may think they do. We could have that policy discussion. First, we have to agree on principle. And and I know we do, but we got to get the rest of the country to agree with that as well. Because we've been globalist for far too long. The church needs to be globalist. That's great. Our government needs to be nationalist. And that's nothing to be ashamed of. one 888 Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike. 
Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater, because we were just talking about globalist nationalists that, um, you know, America first, the concept of America first. Um, th- this is a, a microcosm of that. So California, the state in which I live, Sacramento, our capital, has a globalist mindset. Right? They have a globalist uh, set of principles when it comes to a lot of things, but let's just, you know, sanctuary city status. It's a good example, right? So what's the first priority of the politicians, the representatives of, of California? Not the citizens of the state. It's not. Now let's move away from, from that even. Let's just talk about priorities. I think it's a government. So I think a government is two jobs. We'll do a state government. It's two jobs. First, it's to provide, or excuse me, second is to provide infrastructure, right? Roads, electricity, water. First and foremost, the protection of law-abiding people. Now, I don't want to get into a second amendment debate. debate. Of course, that's your priority. It should be your priority as well, keeping your family safe and blah, blah, blah. But I'm talking to government, right? That's no, I think that's the number one priority is creating a safe environment for people to thrive and flourish in their lives. Best as possible, right? So what's the top priority of, uh, of the representatives in Sacramento? Is it to protect criminals or law-abiding people? I'm going to prove here in five minutes that it's criminals. The top priority of politicians in Sacramento is to protect criminals. They look at it. They look at this issue, public safety, from the criminal's perspective, not from the law-abiding people's perspective. And this is why things get so screwed up. Similarly, these last eight years in D.C., everything was looked at from a global perspective, not from an America first perspective. That's why we have Donald Trump right now. Anyway, here's here's first story. Jesus Cecina, 1978, this guy was driving down the street here in San Diego. Routine traffic stop. San Diego police officer Archie Bugs walks up to the driver's side window. Cecina pulls out his gun, shoots him four times. Gets out of the car stands over the police officer is laying on the ground and shoots him in the head point blank range. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. But then his sentence was reduced because he was only 17 at the time he killed this police officer. So they gave him life in prison with the possibility of parole. Again, this was 1978. Now, since then he's been denied parole 14 times, but in 2014, Jesus Cecina was granted parole. Now, in California, the governor has 120 days to deny a parole. And he did. Governor Brown did. 2015, this cop killer was again granted parole. And the governor denied it. Thank goodness. Just last week, for the third time, this cop killer was granted parole. And now it's up to the governor. What's up with this parole board? <laughs> it's the obvious. This isn't just someone who murdered someone, which is bad enough. It's a guy who murdered a police officer. Now, I love this is the write-up. This is the third sentence in our local newspaper, the San Diego Union Tribune. This is the third sentence. We're going to play a game here. The game is find three irrelevant details in this one sentence alone. And this is the third sentence of the story. Now, Brown, Governor Brown, will have to again decide if it is time for Cecina, who was 17 at the time of the shooting, and is now a graying 55-year-old man with bad knees, should get out of prison. Okay, again, 
where where is the irrelevant information? This is like out of uh, the magazine highlights, right? Like, what's wrong with this photo? What are the three pieces of irrelevant information in this sentence? Governor Brown will have uh, to again to decide if Cecina, who was 17 at the time of his shooting and is now a graying 55-year-old man with bad knees, should get out of prison. Okay, I would say the fact that he is gray hair the fact that he's 55 irrelevant and the state of his knees doesn't matter at all those are not reasons to be granted parole after killing a police officer the only reason that I can possibly fathom why this man would be recommended for parole is to free up prison beds but do you have to do that with someone who shot a police officer five times? California is ground zero for prison reform. Now, here's the problem with prison reform, and I will explain what those are. Prison reform reforms prisons. It doesn't reform prisoners. And the society certainly is not improved with prison reforms. I got three prison reforms that have happened here in just the last few years. 2011, we have what's called... Now, by the way, I should tell you this. Everyone in California, well, everyone paying attention in California knows what these three things are, just top of their mind. This is like... Someone will be like, oh, was that a, was that a Prop 47? Was that an AB 109? Was that a 57? Like, we just... We all know these words. Um, you wouldn't if you're not in California, but this happened this so frequently, like stories that these things come up so often that it's just part of the lexicon in California. So 2011, the Sacramento passed AB 109. It's called prison realignment. So what they did is they took prisoners and, and put the, and I'll tell you why they did all this in a little bit. They took the prisoners and put them in County jails, right? And then the County jails were full. So to free up space, criminals, in the jails had to be released. Okay. That's prison realignment. Two years ago, I guess three now, two in a couple months, we passed prop 47. This is the people of California voted on this prop 47, redefining certain crimes as misdemeanors, so re- redefining certain felonies as misdemeanors. So possession of cocaine, heroin, meth, things like that. It's a misdemeanor now. And there's a bunch of other things too, that we don't have to go over, but you have crimes that used to be felonies are now misdemeanors. So if you used to commit this crime, you'd go to jail. Now you get released the next day and you can commit this misdemeanor 10, 20, 30, 40 times. Boom, 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 boom. Once a day, every single time you just get released the next day. That's Prop 47. Third thing, and this was just a couple months ago, the people of California voted on Prop 57 and it was a total scam from the jump. This is early release of felonies, felons, if they were sentenced to... Uh, or if they were if they were convicted of nonviolent crimes, now when they pitched this to the people of California, they kept saying, "Whoa, whoa, it's yeah, listen, nonviolent criminals." Okay, they were convicted of nonviolent crimes; it's no big deal. And we screamed from the rooftops when this was on the ballot that the common sense definition of nonviolent crime is very different from the legal definition of nonviolent crime. What you would consider very, very violent in the legal world is classified under nonviolent crime. If someone, let me, let me just, I'll be real here. 
you have a daughter, okay? Your daughter's in college, goes to a, uh, a party. Someone puts something in her drink, right? She passes out. Someone finds your daughter, rapes her. Nonviolent crime. Rape of an unconscious person in the legal code is classified as a nonviolent crime. So Prop 57 means if someone raped an unconscious person, they are now eligible for early release because they were sentenced to a nonviolent crime. Human trafficking of a minor, nonviolent crime. Assault with a daily weapon, a deadly weapon, nonviolent crime. You think, whoa, 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 how can assault with a deadly weapon be a nonviolent crime? It's a nonviolent crime. Exploding a bomb with the intent to cause injury, nonviolent crime. You with me on these? So all these nonviolent criminals, rapists, people blowing up bombs, human traffickers, nonviolent criminals. Not based on a common sense definition, but on the legal definition they are. So we have this perfect storm in California of these three things. AB 109, taking prisoners, moving them to jails, and then releasing criminals on the streets. Prop 47, redefining down certain felonies to misdemeanors. And then Prop 57 is letting nonviolent criminals up for parole. All of these prison reforms. These are all prison reforms, right? That's what they call these, prison reforms. And yes, they reform prisons. But it doesn't reform our communities for the better. It's not helping law-abiding people. It's not helping citizens of the state who are following the rules and just want to be safe. But it's not looked at from our perspective. It's looked up from the criminal's perspective. So why is this happening? Supreme Court, 2010. There was a case called Brown versus Plata. Plata was a, crim- uh, a prisoner. He claimed that the prisons were so overcrowded that it constituted cruel and unusual punishment. And the Supreme Court ruled five to four in his favor and ordered the state to reduce the prison population from 200% of design capacity to 137% of design capacity, which means that 40,000 inmates had to be released in two years, right? 40,000 inmates in two years. So they took prisoners, put them down to jails, right? There you go. Now, anyone with common sense would be like, oh, geez, the prisons are overcrowded. We should build more prisons, but progressives decided to instead let prisoners free and did it under the, the headline of prison reform. Justice Alito, he was in the dissent. He said, I fear that today's decision, like prior prisoner release orders, will lead to a grim roster of victims. I hope that I'm wrong. In a few years, we will see. Well, a few years have gone by. It is seen. It's easy to see. And now our state wants to let a cop killer free. And we're supposed to feel pity for him because he has gray hair and bad knees. What a perfect example of not looking at a situation from the proper perspective. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Part of the next generation of talk radio, this is Mike Slater. Uh, I got a 
few minutes. We can chat about this. So did you see uh, Donald Trump on the USS Ford, the aircraft carrier? I think this was on Thursday. Giving a speech talking about how he's going to build the biggest, best military ever, blah, 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 all this good stuff. And then uh, he had a great line, and I wish I had it in front of me. I apologize. But it was something like, um, we're going to build the best military ever. Hopefully, we never have to use it. But if we do, we're going to crush the enemy. Something like that, right? Love it. This was on Thursday, and literally the day before that, I don't even know how, but I came across uh, some writings by a guy named uh, uh, Vegetius. It's about 450 or so. He wrote a book called The Epitome of Military Science. Uh, Roman guy. He wasn't a general. Roman writer. right? And he made two points 1,500 years ago that I know Donald Trump would certainly agree with because it was pretty much exactly what he said on the, on the deck of the USS Ford. Vegetius said, for there is nothing more stabler or more fortunate or admirable than a country which has copious supplies of soldiers who are trained. For it's not stores of gold, silver, and gems that bend out enemies to respect or support us. They are kept down solely by fear of our arms. He who wants victory, let him train soldiers diligently. He who wishes a successful outcome, let him fight with strategy, not at random. No one dares challenge or harm someone who he realizes will win if he fights. Okay, so as with all great warriors, they're not warmongers, right? No warrior loves war, like the, like the brute killing. Like that's No, they're not, you're not a warmonger. You're a warrior. Same thing on a macro level with our country. Great military leaders understand that the best way to prevent a war is to have a strong military and to show it. Vigetius said the glitter of arms strikes very great fear in the enemy. Who can believe a soldier is warlike when his inattention has fouled his arms with mold and rust? That's Trump is saying is our military today. It is fouled with uh, mold and rust. It's old small but we need the glitter of arms again we need the uss ford our newest aircraft carrier right we need the glitter of arms because that's what strikes fear in the enemy we have to stay a generation ahead of our country ahead of our enemy we have to stay a generation ahead i'm not sure what war is going to look like in the future but that's the point no one does you got to be prepared for everything large-scale war guerrilla war every terrain all around the world and that's what trump is talking to talking about when he talks about a big military and a military again that no one wants to use. No one wants to use, but that's the point. That's why it needs to be big and glittering. Not only that, but uh, just I'll end on this. Vigetius, as we talk about all the time, the real great divide in our country is city versus country uh, folks. And Vigetius said that country folk make the best soldiers He says, from the country, the main strength of the army should be supplied. They, country people, are nurtured under the open sky in a life of work, enduring the sun, careless of shade, unacquainted with bathhouses, (laughs) like the spa today, ignorant of luxury, simple-souled, content with a little, with limbs toughened to endure every kind of toil, and for whom digging a ditch and carrying a burden is what they are used to. And he goes on and says, if you must, if you must take a soldier from the city, then you have to break them down first so that they're as good as the country folk. 
And that's what we call boot camp, right? So there's another example of the, the country city divide. I love that. Country folk uh, enduring the sun, unacquainted with bathhouses, ignorant of luxury, simple souled, content with a little. That's how we all should be. All right, I want to talk about the, uh, the cult of environmentalism. We'll do that next on the Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Here's America's greatest country in the world. Uh, one more hour. That's it. Flying by. Glad you're here. Um, I want to talk about, let's do some environmentalism here for a little bit. I want to lead up, build up to the interview. You've probably seen it by now. Tucker Carlson with Bill Nye, the science guy. Uh, really, really interesting moment in the eight minute interview that I, that I want to break down here, but just so we know where we are with environmentalism, what we're talking about here in general, uh, this is the London guardian newspaper. This is a uh, headline. President Obama has four years to save the earth. That was January 17th, 2009. President Obama has four years to save the earth. Last weekend, same newspaper, biologists say half of who, who, right? Like, I hate sentences like that. Scientists say, biologists say half of all species could be extinct by the end of the century. When when are we going to stop believing hystericals? When are we going to stop? 15 years ago, uh, according to Dr. David Viner, a senior research scientist at the Climatic Research Unit, uh, within a few years, winters, few years, this is 15 years ago, within a few years, snowfall will become, quote, a very rare and exciting event. Quote, children just aren't going to know what snow is. The headline was, snowfalls are a thing of the past. It was 15 years ago. Last year, the governor of California saying we're in an unending drought. An unending drought. This was last year. Unending drought. A couple days ago, local San Diego paper, a winter's worth of storms prompts Jerry Brown to ask for $437 million in flood relief. (laughs) Come on. What are we doing? Oh, and that was, by the way, we talked about this last week, but Jerry Brown in 1977 said the drought is of immeasurable magnitude. And then the next year, there was again an unprecedented amount of rainfall. In fact, in one storm, nine people died. All right, so, so what's happening? I believe every person is wired to worship something. All right, that's my that's my thesis. So that's the starting point. I believe every person is created is wired to worship something. Now, uh, if you're so enlightened. That you're not worshiping God. I hope you can tell my sarcasm through the radio. 
then you will worship something else, right? So if you're an atheist and you're like, oh, no, please, I'm flying spaghetti monster. Come on, I'm not going to worship that. You're worshiping something, whether it's yourself or football or money or Beyonce. You're worshiping something because you're wired to. Everyone is. You think you're so enlightened you don't worship God? Fine, you're worshiping uh, Kanye West or whatever. You're worshiping something. And you could also be worshiping the environment. David Cole is an atheist. He uh, he says that you know he'll write he'll write an article from time to time against uh, Christianity, and whenever he does, he gets letters, emails from his you know atheist progressive le- uh, readers. And they congratulate him on sticking it to those superstitious Neanderthals on the right. And David always thinks, you're just the same. You're just as bad, if not worse. He says leftists who consider themselves rational and non-superstitious are like scrawny nerds who look in the mirror and see a chiseled Adonis in the reflection. One almost feels bad for people so possessed of a delusion. So, so again, like these are progressives. They're like, oh, man, yeah, way to stick it to those, uh, you know, those backwards thinking Bible thumpers, religious superstitious nuts. And he's like, you are just as bad. Small example. Then I'll give you a big one. Leftists believe, this is David Cole, leftists believe in the power of money to solve all problems. Much the same as Christians believe in the power of prayer to do the same. Leftists believe that the solution to everything is to throw more money at it. And for leftists, even briefly entertaining the notion that money is not a guaranteed cure-all is not allowed. Yes, lest ye be seen as turning your back on the faith. Okay, we see that obviously all the time with education, for instance, right? More money, more money. It's got to be more money, more money, more money. And you're like, well, how about if we, no, oh my gosh, it can't change anything. It's got to be more money, more money, more money. Right? It's like a, like a cultish, just like, doctrinal like money 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 money, more money more money anyway here's the one i want to talk about here this is the one most applicable to climate change and and all well climate change is is it's the progressives end times it's the end times for the left um this is why you get jerry brown saying in 1977 we're we're entering an, an era of um Oh, what was it? An era of limits. An era of limits. The unending drought stuff, right? The idea that we'll never build. Why build more water storage? It's never going to rain again. The LA Times, 2015. Dams are a relic of the industrial age. They're particularly ill-suited to the era of extremes, heat waves, and droughts that climate change has brought on. Dams are a relic. This is 2015. They're a relic. The New Republic, April 2015. Even if we built a couple of dams, we don't have the water to fill them. We're tapped out. The traditional answer of, answer of building more reservoirs won't solve our problem. Building additional reservoirs does not does little when there's no snow or rain to fill them. Total nonsense. We're now, and again, we talk about this all the time on my local show because I'm here in California, but for every gallon of water used for people, pumped and used for people, three and a half gallons are dumped into the ocean because there's not enough room. There's not, there's not enough water storage capacity. They, otherwise, the dams would overflow. So they have to dump the water into the ocean. This is insane. But two years ago, they're like, oh, pff, it's never going to rain again. 
or this one. This is Jerry Brown on Meet the Press, April 2015. He was asked, why don't we build more dams in California? And he said, I've never heard of such utter ignorance. Building a dam won't do a darn thing about fires or climate change or the absence of moisture in the air and ground in California. If they want to run for president, they better do eighth grade science before they make such utterances. All right, so building dams won't do a darn thing about climate change. <laughs> okay, so why? Why do people, otherwise rational, sane, normal human beings come to these conclusions? Why did Jerry Brown twice tell us that it will never rain again, only to have it be followed up in the next year by an unprecedented amount of rain? Why? Because they are worshiping Mother Earth. You got to worship something. Mother Earth is punishing us, they believe, for our CO2 sins by withholding our precious water. And rainfall will only once again return once we submit to even more cap-and-trade programs and international treaties. We're one international treaty away. We're one uh, sacrifice away from having Mother Earth love us again and, and, and bring rain upon us once again. We talked about a professor... I don't have it in front of me, but he quoted Mother Nature. Like, well, Mother Nature wants, or Mother Nature is, you know, wants this, or I, and it's like, what? Oh, no, 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 you know, it's Mother Nature, uh, and Jerry Brown does this all the time. Uh, Mother Nature uh, can't handle more people in California, right? So they've made Mother Nature, as the, it's the environmentalist idol. It's the deity that we have to submit to, and you can't question how one prophesizes in her name. Right now it's tricky because when someone says, well, mother nature wants like, how can I argue with that? I mean, you're, you're making this thing up. You're, you're mother. What is mother? Who's mother? Can I go talk to mother nature? Can I ask mother nature what she wants? Like, what are you talking about? You're mother nature. Is is mother nature speaking through you? Are you a prophet of mother nature's desires? What are you talking about? No, mother nature didn't speak to you. You just have an opinion and you're quoting this made up authority of mother nature to give your opinion credibility and to make it so that no one can counter what you say, because how am I going to counter mother nature? Like, right. So we have cult leaders and Jerry Brown and Al Gore and all the rest who prophesy in the name of mother nature, who tells, uh, who then tells us what, uh, these, these cult leaders tell us what she wants and what we need to do and what we need to stop doing because this God is mother nature will take away our water. If we don't bow down to them, not even to her, but to them, the prophets themselves. It is a religion. It is a cult. Don't get sucked up and swept up in it. Okay, that's point one. I got to take a break here. I want to come back because now we have all this rain in California. So what happens next? How did this, what explains this? I'll tell you next. Then we'll play the Tucker Carlson clip. one 888 Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. I want to one more, few more minutes just to chat about this uh, religion of environmentalism, and then I'll get to some more specifics. Uh, so the drought, right? So Jerry Brown, Al Gore, all the rest—they're prophets of Mother Earth. 
Even though they're wrong all the time, we still have to bow down to him and the deity that he speaks on behalf of. Uh, this is, uh, again, David Cole. He's a uh, atheist writer who criticizes Christians. And then when atheists come to him and they're like, oh, yeah, way to stick it to those superstitious Neanderthals. He's like, uh, guys, you're worse. He says the end times apocalyptic cultists were wrong, but you won't hear any of them admit it. He's talking about the Jerry Browns, the environmentalist apocalyptic cultists. Just as Christian doomsday cultists never apologize when their rapture clock turns out to be broken, so too do the Macumba practitioner. <laughs> Macumba's like super ritualistic. Uh, I think it's in Brazil. Uh, it's like dancing and, and uh, whipping and stuff like that. Uh, so too do the Macumba practitioners of the, of the left feel no need to explain themselves. Because the members of their parish, the smug Rachel Maddow watching NPR listen and atheist Democrat soft skulls, soft skulls demand no explanation. Again, it's a matter of faith. If the rapture doesn't happen as prophesized, it's not because Pastor Looney Bin was wrong in his calculations. It's because God changed his mind at the last minute and rescheduled the blessed event. And now we must double our faith in our beloved pastor as he attempts to figure out the time and place of the new rapture. And if the three ring circus necromancers, wizards, if the three ring circus wizards of the left got the duration of the California drought wrong, it's not because their models and methodologies were faulty. No, it's because Mother Earth cried tears of sympathy on our state to buy us a little more time to confiscate asthma inhalers so that we may regain her favor. He's not joking about that last line. The Obama administration a couple of years ago banned the most popular, most effective type of inhalers because they're bad for the planet these inhalers had cfc's and if you're a millennial you probably know what cfc's are you've heard it before i've heard it preached a million times in middle school chlorofluorocarbons and uh this is about the ozone layer when i was in middle schoolish it was all about acid rain and the ozone layer i remember distinctly remember being told that statues were were uh, uh rotting away they were eroding because of acid rain. I haven't heard anything about acid rain in 15 years. I haven't heard about the ozone layer either. Anyone know how the ozone layer is doing? So we've, uh, you know, we stopped using these CFCs, chlorofluorocarbons and hairsprays and stuff like that, aerosol cans. Um, so, so they banned, you know, the hairsprays with them and then the, the aerosol cans. Stuff. But asthma inhalers still use CFCs. Right. So, so we ban the hairsprays and all the rest, but because regulators have to regulate, there's nothing else to regulate, so it's gone all the way down. It's trickled all the way down to asthma inhalers. So we banned certain asthma inhalers, which increased the cost from about 20 bucks to you know up to $60. But whatever, it doesn't matter. Every sacrifice is a blessed, is a blessed one when it's for Mother Earth. David Cole says, indeed, it's worse because it, it, the environmentalists, the left, the left's religion... Because it's way more invasive, way more intrusive in the lives of bystanders. No right-wing Christian ever forced me to anoint with oil. But leftist charlatans posing as scientists banned the only type of inhaler that helped my elderly mom's asthma. Because the act of her going psh, psh, so she wouldn't die was bringing about the end of days. While Al Gore's totally unnecessary private jet oddly had no effect on the environment. That's science? No. That's an Indian rain dance. Yeah, this Trump hysteria is cultish as well. Same thing. 
You know, Christians believe in spiritual warfare. It's all over the Bible. Atheists, progressives, they, they don't believe in spiritual warfare until Trump came around. Washington Post wrote an article about a Trump rally and uh, talked about the demonic influences that were there. <laughs> Alex Griswold, uh, he was writing about the outrage in 2013 when Justice Scalia said he believed in the devil. But now uh, these same people think that Trump supporters are possessed by the devil. <laughs> or how about Sarah Silverman taking a picture of the spray paint on the sidewalk? She was walking to breakfast in New York City or L.A., and uh, she saw these swastikas all over the sidewalk. They were everywhere. And she took a picture of it. And she's like, oh, Trump's America. Oh. And it turns out they were just your average sidewalk uh, like utility markers. They didn't even look like swastikas. It was like a Z with a line through it. They, were like not, they didn't resemble a swastika at all. <laughs> and her excuse was basically, the devil made me do it. Visions and fever dreams all around them. I'll wrap up with this uh, with David Cole. These days, the left has no moral high ground over the religious right. In fact, I'd take a conservative Christian over a demon-haunted leftist any day because at least the conservative Christian admits that their beliefs are faith-based. They don't go around screaming, science, 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 while drinking sacrificial goat's blood Santeria-style because the rain gods are angry. I have nothing against people of faith, but hypocrites, oh, they tick me off like a son of a gun. Indeed. Do we have time to play the uh, the Bill Nye clip, 1394? Let's do this. So this is um, uh, Bill Nye the science guys. Bill, 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 Bill. On uh, Tucker Carlson the other day. I just want to play the ending here. Uh, and there's a lot to, to break down, but let's, t- let's take it in. Increases the speed of that change. And my point is, what would the climate look like right now without human activity? It would At what point like it would it have warmed or cooled? The Britain would not, would not have changed during that period. Growing- Yes, Britain would not be very well suited to growing grapes as it is today. French winemakers would not be buying land to the north uh, as they are now. Uh, People who uh, plan to run ski resorts would still be able to do it in Europe. Uh, And so the climate change and the parasites... You're using the language of politics. Look, you're not a a scientist, as you know. You're a popularizer. I'm using the language of economics. But so I'm, ju- I'm just saying, you look, asked what it would to the be extent like that you prevent people, okay, did if you, you prevent people like? from having an honest conversation, you're doing a grave disservice to science. Don't you think that? So you asked, uh, you asked how long it would be before, what would the climate would be like if humans weren't involved right now? Is that right? Yeah. Yes, that's okay. exactly right. So at, the at what point would, be would like it have a, changed? And so, I'm just saying, you don't actually know because it's unknowable. So, this so why is how aren't long you it open takes to you questions? to interrupt me, okay? It takes you quite a bit less than six seconds. So the climate would be like it was in 1750. And the economics would be that you could not grow wine-worthy grapes in Britain as you can today because the climate is changing. The use of pesticides in the Midwest would not be increasing okay. because the parasites are showing up sooner and ha- are the pests are showing up sooner and hanging around longer the, i the, think that's probably all Wyoming true but you would not be overwhelmed okay. by pine bark beetles as it is right. because of climate change that's how so the much world of this would be you don't know for humans. you pretend that you know but you don't know I and you believe people you, who ask I you really questions i really have to disagree with you right. a- okay stop there um we got to talk about this next <laughs> There's a lot to break down there, but I want to focus on the point that I wish Tucker would have brought up with Bill. There's no ideal 
temperature of the planet. There's no such thing as normal temperature or normal climate for any part of the country. Bill Nye does this whole, uh, oh, well, uh, you know, we got to go back to what the temperature was in 1750. Well, why? What What was so special about 1750? I know it was right before the Industrial Revolution. That's why they picked that. But who says that that was the ideal temperature? And the grapes right now, where they are grown in Italy or France, who says that that's where grapes should be grown? Or always could have been grown. And it's bad that they're growing in different places now. Like, you're making it all up. I want to break all that down next. By the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later. So I don't want to replay the clip again, but Tucker Carlson asked Bill Nye, the science guy, what the climate, what was it like? What would the climate look like if there wasn't climate change or something like that? And uh, Bill said, well, uh, you know, farmers or uh, wine growers in France would not be buying land north of where they currently are. And, and the idea is that uh, it's now too warm in France. So they have to go further north where it's the right ideal temperature for growing grapes. Now, I understand that there's an ideal temperature for growing grapes, but my point is, how do you know that that is where that's the ideal place for that temperature? Right. I, I, I don't know how to explain this any different. Like, There's no such thing as an ideal temperature of the planet. There's no such thing as a normal temperature of the climate for any part of the country. So when a scientist or an environmentalist like Bill Nye says we need to return to a point in time, right? Like we got to get back to whatever the climate was in 1750 or environmentalists in California, there's a big movement called rewilding. So we need to rewild a river in California by removing a dam. We have to return that river to its quote unquote natural state. Or we have to reduce the temperature to some certain made-up temperature, right? The, the, all, whenever you hear things like that, the assumption is that there's an ideal to return to, right? So I'm just using Bill Nye's examples. We need to have cap-and-trade policies because we need to make sure that England is well-suited to grow grapes, and we need to raise electricity rates so that you use less so that winemakers in France don't need to buy land north of France because where the vineyards are now is the perfect ideal place for them. And you need to do whatever Al Gore says because ski resorts are supposed to be right where they are right now. And we need to spend billions on solar plants and other inefficient sources of energy because otherwise parasites would show up sooner than they do now on trees and for some reason, when they show up now is the right time for them to show up. And we can't do anything that might change that. Right? Did you see how odd that is? I, I truly, I can't even wrap my head around the idea of a right temperature. It makes no sense at all. I'm in San Diego. It's like 76 today. Headquarters in Dallas. You know, it's colder. And then somewhere else, it's five degrees in, in America. And it's like, what? what like, I don't get it. There's no such thing as a 
the right climate. There's no such thing as an ideal climate that we need to achieve. And even if there was, even if there was something that you wanted to achieve, it's impossible to achieve the right climate. It doesn't make any sense. And that's what the entire environmentalist movement is based off of. Now, here's where it gets a little deep. Because no environmentalist can answer what the ideal is when it comes to the temperature of a planet or the climate. What they do is they just default into the ideal is wherever there are no humans. So what's the ideal use of this piece of land? Well, no humans on it. There's a uh, part, I used to live uh, in a part of San Diego called Mission Beach. So on one side, you got the beach. On the other side, you have a man-made, which is the funny part about it, but a man-made bay, right? It's called Mission Bay. And it's got, uh, parts have hotels on it, parts have condos, parks, beautiful. And one part of it, one corner of this island in the bay has um, had a trailer park. So they removed the trailer park recently. And now we're, the city's wondering, what do we do with it? What do we do with this piece of land? And I, it's, it's truly the most beautiful, undeveloped land in all of San Diego, right? It's right, beautiful. Right next to the beach. It's on the bay. It's in an island. It's like stunning, stunningly beautiful. So I was like, geez, I don't know, a hotel, maybe some nice apartments. You put a park there as well. Nope, swamp. Right? They want to turn it into a wetland. A wetland. What are you, a wetland? What are you talking about? Why would anyone want to do that? Because anything that has no humans is the ideal. Right? And what is, what is more anti-human than a swamp? Right? Now, I happen to believe that the environment should be used for the benefit of humans. This is uh, a clip of Alex Epstein. Uh, Required reading for the Mike Slater Show is his book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels by Alex Epstein. Um, Good friend of the show. Here he is on uh, the Rubin Report uh, just the other day. So basically, I think that they would generally argue that someone like you is anti-science because they would say, oh, okay, all these climate scientists say this. He's saying the reverse. But what you're saying is actually they're anti-science because, yeah, we split the atom and then they go, but some bad going to happen because of it. But you would say, well, that's what human progress is. And right. yeah, some, something's going to happen and we'll have to figure, and that's, we'll figure that out, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so that, that really is the most scientific. Yeah, so I'd say, I mean, fundamentally, to put it in Ayn Rand terms, I think they're anti-mind. So one one way of looking at this is I mentioned that there's this idea that man-made CO2 is bad, man-made radiation is bad, but, you know, man-made industrialization is bad. So basically everything man-made is considered bad. So, you know, now at this moment in time, plastic bags are considered less natural than paper. If you go into Whole Foods, right, it's all about natural, local. As little technology went into this product as possible, right? That's what green ultimately boils down to. So the ideal, think about what is the ideal green earth, the ideal green anything, is what the world would look like if human beings had never existed. <laughs> that is their ideal, right? The ide- what's the ideal form of food? The kind of food that we- would exist if human beings had never existed. Right. What's the ideal amount of CO2 in the atmosphere? The amount of CO2 that would exist if human beings had never existed. What's the amount of radiation if human beings had never existed? So that's, they have this very deep premise. So what is the man-made? 
The man-made is simply the form of change in nature that exists created by a human mind. Mm -hmm. That's the only difference, right? Change is inherent in nature. That's why climate change is this kind of inane term, right? But everything changes things. Everything is transforming things in nature. But the man-made, the only difference is that it's driven by a mind. So if you're anti-man-made, you're anti-mind-made, and you're anti-mind. So then you might ask, why do they appeal to science all the time? Why do they try to take the high ground on science? And the answer is because science has a lot of prestige, and if you want to put over bad ideas, invoke <laughs> science. But notice they're against all the practical products of science, at least the core one, the core leaders of the movement. But are. they're using them all the time, though. What do you mean? Well, they're using all the things that science has given us. Right. The well, time. the way I think of it is this, like, would the green movement, if it could go back in time, would the green movement have approved turning a patch of dirt and trees into New York City? <laughs> would they? I, would Greenpeace have a thumbs up to New York City? I guess at best it would have been a lot slower. <laughs> no right? chance. No chance. <laughs> right. right? So Central they, Park would be a lot so bigger. Basically, and, their yeah. philosophy would have prevented everything that we know uh, from existing. But they are parasites on that. And then they, you know, so they're they're hypocrites. But this is the way that all bad ideas work is basically the people promoting the bad ideas want people to contradict them to a certain amount because if you followed all the bad ideas, everyone would die. So right. what they want is people to contradict them so they can feed off of them. I mean, this is right out of Atlas Shrugged. But then they can keep them guilty. Mm -hmm. So what they want for the industrialists, like if you look at the oil companies or any companies, what they want is for the oil companies, they don't want the oil companies not to work. They want the oil companies to work and be super guilty and give them money and tell them that they're great for being what? For being nothing, for accomplishing sure. nothing, for producing nothing. So it's, it's basically people with a very deep resentment of productive human beings mm -hmm. who want to feel important. And environmentalism or anti-humanism gave them this perfect vehicle. But if we call it anti-humanism, they're going to be a lot less confident and there will be fewer of them. A lot going on there. Uh, the point is, the environmentalists don't want say, oil companies to not exist because everyone needs oil. You know, Leonardo DiCaprio flew in an eyebrow artist for the Oscars from Australia. Now, to be fair, this eyebrow artist worked on other actors as well. But as Glenn Reynolds says, I will start thinking that climate change is a problem when they start acting like it's a problem. So Leonardo DiCaprio wants oil companies to exist because he can't, like he himself can't do anything to make his private jet fly in the air, right? He, he doesn't create that, right? Oil companies do, right? Oil companies make it possible for his jet to fly in the air. So he doesn't want the oil companies to not exist. He just wants the oil companies to bow down to him and his fellow environmentalists for doing nothing. And they... Leonardo DiCaprio and the rest, they want everyone else to feel guilty for using oil because this gives them the moral superiority that they really want. I reject that. I'm grateful. I'm a grateful user of fossil fuels. I'm grateful for development, for my home, for roads, for engineering the environment, for a long and prosperous and healthy life for me and my fellow human beings. I feel no guilt about that whatsoever. Nor should you, if I may say. 1-888-933-93. We'll wrap up with, uh, I don't want to call it a fake story. It's not a fake news story, but kind of. We'll do that next. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.
The offer of a franchise can only be made through delivery of a franchise disclosure document. Eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater is on. So last segment we talked about uh, an article from David Cole, an atheist, who criticized. You know, he says when he criticizes Christians, he'll get uh, a bunch of uh, people who write him, and they're like, "Oh, great article! Way to stick it to those Bible thumping, superstitious Neanderthals." And uh, David Cole writes back, "You're worse <laughs> because uh, everyone is wired to worship something." And uh, David Cole's argument is that progressive atheists impose their religion on the rest of people, the rest of us, way more than Christians do. And their religion uh, generally comes through the form of uh, of government. Joel is here from uh, Cleveland. What's going on, Joel? Thanks for calling in. Hi, this is Joe, J-O-E. Oh, Joe, I apologize. And, uh, yeah, no, no problem. I just wanted to say, yeah, thanks for a great talk, very informative and I'm an atheist, and I believe you're right about probably most atheists that a kind of new religion has risen up. And I just wanted to mention there was a kind of split in American atheism going back to 2000-2014, where most of the celebrity atheists signed a statement repudiating any atheist who didn't agree with them on, on global warming. And a lot of atheists at that time canceled their subscriptions to, you know, the atheist magazine. So this is this is basically a big split, and it's it basically is a a, a new type of religion. Well, I had no idea. So you're telling me, like, within the atheist community, the leaders of the atheists, right? The you said it's celebrity atheists, right? But like, we'll call it like the leaders of the people like running these magazines or whatever. They said officially, because you're an atheist, you must essentially believe in climate change. Uh, well, more or less, you know, any any atheist that they would respect as an atheist would have to believe in climate change. They they signed a letter to that effect in 2014. Wow. You can uh, you know Google it, but uh, yeah, you know, this has been an ongoing thing, and it's it's kind of split the American atheist movement, the, the older, more math rational orientated atheists, many of them refuse to, you know, go along with this uh, climate change thing. So they've been kind of bumped out as older, you know, people from the past. A, a lot of these older, how interesting because in, yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't interrupt. I'm sorry. I'm just saying how interesting because in a rational world, what is, what does atheism and global warming and believing global warming have anything to do with each other? That's like saying, Really, in a rational world, that would be like saying, if you're a Yankees fan, you have to believe in global warming. And it's like, well, <laughs> hold on. Like, these two things have, you know what I mean? Like, they have nothing in common. So yeah, wh- why did the atheists, like, why do you think they jumped on the bandwagon, the global warming bandwagon? Well, you know, this is something that started in the 60s when science started to get a more popular science type of uh, uh, presentation in the media. You know, Carl, Carl Sagan was one of the first, uh, you know, big-time popular science writers, and he kind of gave like a consumerist, less rational, less thinking type approach to to the presentation of science, and that basically culminated in what we have today, where it's almost like a, a comic book uh, fantasy or something, where, uh, you know, these supposed advanced thinkers support, 
you know, stuff like global warming while these, like you said, Neanderthals believe other things, you know, so it's, wow. you know, it's the government co-opted everything you said is basically uh, correct. You know, we, our society is degenerated in, in logical thought. You know, students used to study eight hours a day in the sixties. Now they, they study an hour a day or, or less, mm-hmm. you know, so it's not surprising this type of thing has, uh, has happened. It also goes along with kind of a, a split in Western philosophy, going back to Rousseau, where Rousseau basically worshipped the primitive. And that's where this modern religion kind of started. You know, Rousseau and his fellows, a lot of them claimed to be atheists, but they weren't really. They, they worshipped primitive, primitiveness at that mm-hmm. time, too, and it kind of evolved to what we have today. And I just wanted to add uh, one more thing, and that's with worship always goes competition with another tribe. You know, yes. that's a ev- evolutionary point of view on why religion exists. Basically that, you know, there's a theory that it exists to organize tribes to compete against other tribes. You know, that's why war is often just, been associated with with religion. But yeah, the, Joe, but the I, thing is, yeah. I, uh, Joe, I, hate, I really got to run. I Honestly, I swear I'm not... <laughs> Like cutting you off here, man. I got to hear the music. I got to run. I apologize, Joe. If you can send over anything that you about the global warming and the atheist split to me, I would love to read more about that and chat more. Appreciate everyone being here. We'll see you next Saturday. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network.